Well, let me go ahead and say good morning to everyone. Good morning. Very thankful for an opportunity for us to come together once again to study the Word of God. And I believe the Lord has something special He wants to share with us this morning. And so as we prepare our hearts once again, I really appreciate Pastor's prayer. And now we're just going to pray and ask for the Lord to enlighten our mind. We are actually instructed in inspiration that before we open the Word of God, that we should be specific in our prayers to ask for the presence of God's Spirit, that He may come and enlighten our minds, that we may understand the very words that we read. And so I would like to go ahead and offer that very specific prayer at this time. And if you'd like to, you can join with me as we would kneel together to do so. Father in heaven, we are so grateful. We thank you, dear God, for the wonderful way your spirit has been speaking to our hearts all throughout this entire weekend. And Lord, we have come now as we are reaching the close of our weekend together. And we just simply want to hear more about Jesus. And so I simply pray, please abide with us, forgive us of our sins, and grant us your Holy Spirit. May he truly come and enlighten our minds. Give us understanding and open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. And I believe that you have not only heard, but you have answered this prayer. So by faith, we say thank you. And now, Lord, let thy will be done, we pray. And make your words plain, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew, the 19th chapter. We're going to the book of Matthew, the 19th chapter. And we will review just a portion of a very, very familiar story to most who are good church-going people, students of the scripture. The Bible tells us a very interesting story in the book of Matthew. And we're looking at the 19th chapter. And when you get there, just please say amen. Amen. The Bible says in the book of Matthew, the 19th chapter, starting at verse 16. It says, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? This is none other than a rich young ruler, as the Gospels bring out further if we study the whole story. And this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he calls him good master and he says, I want to know how can I have eternal life? Now he was asking the question because he was expecting to get an answer. Which means he didn't have the answer himself, else he would never have gone to Jesus. Yet he was a rich young ruler. You understand that? Now do you understand that that's strange? That a rich young ruler is asking a question of which he does not have an answer to? Do you know, according to the scripture, that can appear very strange. Can I show you why? Go to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. If you go to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 10, I will show you why it is interesting when you see a rich young ruler that is coming to Christ asking a question of which he does not have the answer to. Yet he's a rich man. And the reason why this is important for us to understand is because the Bible says something very important in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're now going to consider chapter 10. And when you get there, please say amen. In the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 10, I want you to zoom in right on verse 19. And the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 19, it says, A feast is made for laughter, and wine maketh merry, but money does what? Money answers all things. What kind of ruler was this that came to Jesus? He was rich, so did he have money? And money answers how many things? But here it is that he realized that while money can answer many things as it pertains to the temporal, money could not help him when it came to the spiritual. That's an important lesson that we need to give even to those who have wealth. 
There are many a times that we feel like rich people cannot be reached because they have the answer to everything. They have all the money. They have all the prestige. They have all the property. They have everything they need. Therefore, obviously, it's hard to get the gospel to them. But brothers and sisters, there are some things that money cannot answer. No matter how much you make. And I marvel at how so often even God's people will sacrifice their walk with Jesus and their devotional time so that they can get sometimes two jobs and one business or whatever it takes so they can just make money. When there's going to be a very important question that cannot be answered by money. And that is what must I do to be saved? It is imperative that we help people understand. And it doesn't matter if we are from poor neighborhoods or whatever it may be. We need to understand we have a message for the rich. We have a message for those who are obtaining all the temporal things of life and look like they are increased and have need for nothing. God says, no, they need the gospel because there are things that money can answer pertaining to the temporal world. But when it comes to the spiritual, money can't answer the needs of the heart. And so it is. He's rich. He has money that could answer things to the temporal. But when it came to the spiritual, when it came to eternal life, that money could not answer the question. And therefore, he had to go to one who had the answer. And that was Jesus. And he said, what must I do that I may be saved? You see, people are all around us right now that are dying in sin. There are people all around us that are surrounded by circumstances of life. And they are asking the same question that this man asked even though they may not articulate it in the same exact verbiage. People are all around us, looking wistfully to heaven, inspiration tells us, and they are just waiting to be gathered in. I pray that we really understand what it means the next time you see a man or a woman across you at that gas station. The next time you go to the bank and you see the teller that you often say hello to. The next time you go to the grocery store and you see all the people there from cashiers to managers and you see all these folks that we take for granted that we are just going to see them tomorrow. When the Bible says so clear that our lives are like a vapor. We can be here today and gone tomorrow, brothers and sisters. So any opportunity that we have to meet people, we have to have that connection with Christ that we need to be able to talk with him and he can talk back to us and let us know, is this one of the people that's asking the question, what must I do to be saved? But brothers and sisters, would it not be a tragedy if we came in contact with such people and we don't have an answer? You see, brothers and sisters, we need to understand that that little statement in the book Steps to Christ, page 70, it became a part of us. It's a staple in our home, if you will. It's something that my family and I, every morning worship, when we come together before the altar of God and we have our family worship. It is understood by my bride, Alexandra, my children, Jared, Kayla, Caleb, and Jada, that before we get up off of our knees and begin our day, every time we finish our devotional moment with the Lord, we all together repeat in harmony, if you will, and we all repeat those wonderful words of Steps to Christ, page 70, that says, Take me, O Lord, as holy thine. I lay all my plans at thy feet. Use me today in thy service. Abide in me. And let all my works be wrought in thee. God expects us to plan our days. He expects us to do all that we can to be busy people for him and for the work that he has set before us. But brothers and sisters, as much as you plan your day, you have to remember, I lay all my plans at thy feet. I give you permission to interrupt it. Because you might have a plan to go do one thing, but if God allows your vehicle to break down so that somebody could come to rescue your vehicle and you can rescue them in the arms of Jesus. 
You have to be able to say, not my will, but thy will be done. And don't be like Israel and murmur and complain. Truly, we can repeat the words of the Apostle Paul that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and those who are called according to his purpose. All around us are people who want to know how to be saved. And I have a problem because there's things that I see happening in the Advent band that often concerns my heart. There are some who go ahead and get training in medical missionary work. Is that a bad thing? That's a beautiful thing, brothers and sisters. I believe that the medical missionary work is the finishing work that God wants to use in such a time as this in earth's history. We often talk about the uh, statement, a revival of true godliness. Is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs to seek this should be our first work? I would challenge any of you. The next time you read that quote, remember, it was not a revival. It said a revival of true godliness. Now, if you go to the book Councils of Health, you will see that there is a statement right there. I'll give you the exact reference in a moment. There's a statement right there in the book Councils on Health where she says, Christ gave a perfect representation of true godliness. And you know what she says next? She says, by combining the work of a minister with the work of a physician. Ministering to both the body and the soul. Medical missionary work is one of the most blessed revelations of true godliness when it is understood in its right bearing. So medical missionary work is definitely not a bad thing. Amen. It's a beautiful thing, but watch this. It is sad when an individual will get medical missionary training and they know more about how to apply poultices than to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? That's a problem. When an individual can get to a place where they know more how to minister to cancer and other things of the body, but they do not know how to minister to the soul heart needs. We're surrounded by a lot of medical missionaries like this. And as the truth be told, they are only medical missionaries registered on earth. But God does not recognize them as his medical missionaries. All medical people are to be missionaries. And all missionaries have a clear understanding of the gospel. It is imperative that even when we sound the alarm, as we talked about last night, that did you know that there are some people that actually know more of how to sound the alarm of the warning of the Sunday law crisis than to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? It seems as if we have removed ourselves from the basics. And we like to take that which is most titillating and most startling. It is not that we are to neglect the startling realities of what the Bible tells us through prophecy, but it's imperative that we have the answer to the simple question. What must a man, what must a woman do to be saved? If we don't know the answer to that, brothers and sisters, we are of very little use in the hands of God. And so it is that Christ says, I want my people to understand this. And he wants us to understand this to such a point that he had his prophet say something about it. Notice this. In the book, volume four, the testimonies to the church. I want you to see what it says in page 394. It says there are more souls longing to understand how they may come to Christ than we imagine. More than we imagine. So no matter how much you imagine, there's even more. Now watch this. It says next. Many listen to popular sermons from the pulpit and know no better than before they listen how to find Jesus and the peace and rest which their souls desire. Did we talk about peace and rest last night? Yes. 
Do we talk about the Christian life abiding in Christ as a life of restfulness? And it brings about a peace because we know that we have been justified by faith. Remember we talked about that? And so it is, it says, many listen to popular sermons from the pulpit and know no better. Can you imagine coming to a church service, hearing the great speaker, teacher, whomever they may be, and at the end of the day, we know no better than before the sermon, they listen, how to find Jesus and the peace and rest which their souls desire. Now look at this. This is very deep. I appreciate the testimony so much, brothers and sisters. Truly, it is inspired of heaven. Look at what it says. Ministers who preach the what message? Last message. All right. Now, look at this, saints. Ministers who preach the last message of mercy to the world should bear in mind that Christ is to be exalted as the sinner's refuge. In all of our discourses, no matter how much we see prophetic reality being fulfilled, lift up Christ as a refuge. A place of safety from the warning. Now watch this. It says, many ministers think that it is not necessary to preach repentance and faith with a heart all subdued by the love of God. They take it for granted that their hearers are perfectly acquainted with the gospel. And that matters of a different nature must be presented in order to hold their attention. So some ministers will say, I will not preach the importance of repentance and faith and a heart that is subdued by the love of God because they already know that. And as a result of them saying they already know that, then what they do is they begin to preach other messages that in their minds, which is quite carnal, in their minds they think this is the message that the people need to hear. Now watch how the devil deepens this deception through the next part of the quote. Watch. It says, they take it for granted that their hearers are perfectly acquainted with the gospel and that matters of a different nature must be presented in order to hold their attention. Now watch what happens. If their hearers are what? Interested. They take it as evidence of success. So God says, this is the message I want you to give. The minister says, I don't think the people need that. They already know that. So let me give this message because I think this is more important for the people right now. And then when the people say, amen, minister, that's right. We are so interested in what you're teaching us. The minister says, ah, then that means what I said was right. When all along they were wrong. That's why ministers are never to be moved by the congregation. The minister always has to speak only what God told him to speak. That's it. Now watch this. It says, the people, oh my word, look at this brothers and sisters. The people are more what? Ignorant. Ignorant in regard to the plan of salvation and need more what? Instruction upon this all what? All important subject than upon any other. What is the all important subject that more upon any other we need to dwell with the people? plan of salvation. How does a man get saved? You understand that? How does a man get saved? How does a woman get saved? How does an individual go from darkness to light? How does an individual go from being lost to being safe in the arms of Jesus? We have to know this and we can't assume it. But the only way this can become a reality to us is we must be about our father's business. We have to make sure that we understand there's a work to do that is beyond our borders. Is that right? Did we learn that yesterday? We have a work to do that's beyond our borders, brothers and sisters. So we cannot think 
that all we're going to do is just constantly remind just the Adventists that we are Adventists. Yes, we have a part to do with that. Did John minister within? Yes, he did. But did John minister without? Is John's work our work? So therefore, we understand that we have to know how to minister to souls without. We got to know how to go to people that are full-blown heathens living in sin. Never heard of God, never accepted God, never professed God, are practicing some of the most base and vile practices. We have to know how to reach them and give them the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Now, there is a beautiful lesson we learn about the way of God. There is a term in the Bible called the way, and the term way is often used to be connected to salvation because it's a path that leads ultimately to one that individuals find themselves safe in his arms. So when you hear this thing about the way, you remember that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. This is when, you know, the question was asked, how can we come to the father? How shall we know the way to him? And Jesus's answer was in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. The term way resulted in a path that led to the father of which abides salvation. So Jesus says, I am the way. Later on, when Jesus ascended and commissioned the disciples to give the gospel, when the disciples would give the gospel, the Bible says that they would do this. These men are the servants of the most high God, which show unto us the way of salvation. So again, when you think of the term the way, you're thinking of salvation, the way of salvation. So when you hear this term way in a symbolic standpoint in the scripture, it is referencing the way of salvation, how an individual gets saved. How an individual comes safe into the arms of God. And that's Acts 16, 17. Therefore, it is not a wonder that we read in Psalm 77, 13, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. So the more that we understand the sanctuary and its services, is the easier it is for us to understand how an individual is saved. With this being the case, I want us now to turn our Bibles to the book of Leviticus chapter 4. Knowing this, understanding this, we're going to take a look at some of the sanctuary services. We're going to watch how God is going to instruct from his word and help us get as clear a picture as possible in the short time that we have. Now, please keep in mind, we can talk weeks about the plan of salvation because there's much in it. But I believe that God is going to give us enough gems that we're going to be able to go through his word and understand how an individual can go from a lost condition to a saved, safe condition with God. So let's take a look at the book of Leviticus. We're in chapter four. And when you get there, please let me know by saying amen. We're in Leviticus, the fourth chapter. Now, in Leviticus four, we are specifically learning about what's called the sin offerings. And when you study the sin offerings in the sanctuary services, you will understand that there were sin offerings for different classes of people. There were sin offerings for the priest. There were sin offerings for the king. And then there were sin offerings for what is known as the common people. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to study Leviticus four. We're going to look at verses twenty seven to thirty one. We're going to read it first, and then we're going to consider it as we're going to start to kind of break down the verses. All right? So we're in Leviticus 4. If you're there, please say amen. amen. Now we're looking at verse 27. We're going to take it down to verse 31. I'll read verse 27. You read 28. I'll do 29 and onward. And we'll take it all the way to verse 31. So let's notice what the Bible says. It says, And if any one of the common people sin through ignorance... While he doeth somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done and be guilty.
And he shall lay his hand upon the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. Verse 31, and he shall take away all the fat thereof, as the fat is taken away from off the sacrifice of peace offerings, and the priest shall burn it upon the altar for a sweet savor unto the Lord, and the priest shall make an atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. Now here it is, this is how we can see an individual getting to a place where they are forgiven, they are cleansed from their sins, they are now standing in right standing with God. So we're going to talk about what is the process of how this works. This is not the end result because we know that this is something that's going to begin in the outer court, transition to holy place, and end in most holy place. So there's a big picture in all of this, but we're going to capture some fundamentals from it. The first thing we're going to look at is verse 27. When you look at verse 27, it says, if any one of the what kind of people? Now it says, if any one of the common people. Now, if you think about the common people, that's just regular, simple people that do not hold any special type of positions, any type of priestly position, any type of kingly position. This is where I would say we can definitely find ourselves in relatability. We would be classified, if you will, as the common people. We are not priests in in, in this context here. We are not priests. And we are not kings. We are just simply the common people, the day to day folks that just live day by day, seeking to do God's will and live a life to glorify him. So we can definitely associate and relate ourselves to verse 27 for sure. It says if any one of the common people sin through what? Ignorance. Is it possible to sin through ignorance? Now, if we sin through ignorance, does God judge us or condemn us? Now you say no. How do we know no? Because there are some people right now, I remember talking with a man. In fact, I was at 3ABN. And when we were doing a recording at 3ABN, there was a gentleman there who was not Seventh-day Adventist. And when he and I started to talk, he started telling me about his philosophies. He was a Baptist. And he started to tell me about his philosophies of salvation. And we began to talk about Romans 2 and how Romans 2 shows that even heathens were worshiping God and, and honoring God, even though they didn't really know God. They were considered to be faithful. Because they were living up to whatever light of righteousness that they knew. And God recognized it as righteousness. Therefore, God said, that's my people. As we started to talk about that, he said, I don't agree. And then I said, so what are you saying? He says, if anybody goes to a Christless grave, they're going to be separated from God forever. And I said, okay, so let me ask you a question. A Muslim boy grows up in a very, very strict Islamic country with Sharia law, and no Christians are entering into that area. So all this boy ever grew up understanding is Islam. This person grows up and understands Islam, that's all they knew, and this person is serving God to the best of their knowledge to understand what God requires of him. He dies in that condition. Are you telling me he's still going to go to hell? He said, yes. Why? Because he went to a Christless grave. And I said, my brother, you have a very poor aspect of judgment. I said, that is not what the Bible teaches. There are times when people can sin. Now, did this person more than likely commit sin? Absolutely. But he did it how? In ignorance. Now, what does the Bible say about that? Go to the book of Acts 17. Keep your finger on Leviticus 4. But now we're going to the book of Acts 17. Because there are many who sin through ignorance. They are sinning, but they're doing it ignorantly. And the question is, how does God deal with such individuals? So now we're going to the book of Acts 17. 
In Acts the 17th chapter, the Bible makes it very clear as we consider the experience of the Apostle Paul with the Athenians in Greece. When Paul was there in Athens with the people who were practicing idolatry, the Bible makes it very clear that they were worshiping an idol that had an inscription on it to the unknown God in verse 23. So these people are practicing idolatry of which God hates and is definitely a sin. Yet the question is, how did God deal with them? You see in Acts 17, by the time you get to verse 30, notice what the Apostle Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, and the times of this what? Ignorance. It says God did what? He winked at. If any of you look up the Greek word for winked, it means overlooked. God did not hold them accountable. They did not know that they were sinning. They were sinning through ignorance. So therefore, the Apostle Paul says, in your time of ignorance, God winked at. He did not hold you accountable for it. He overlooked it and didn't allow judgment to meet you for the fact that you were sinning against him through ignorance. But now watch this. This means then that condemnation comes not simply to everybody. This is why I'm glad that we don't believe in doom, gloom, fire and brimstone preaching. We don't believe in that as a movement. We don't go around just going all throughout the streets and telling everybody they're on their way to hell. You're hell bound. You're hell bound. Everybody's hell bound. We don't go around doing those type of things. Why? Because there are people who are living in sin, but they're doing it how? Ignorantly. Does God condemn them? No, then we shouldn't either. You see, the Bible gives us a principle of when condemnation comes. Go to John 3. You're keeping your finger on Leviticus 4, but go to John 3. When you go to John 3, we understand how condemnation can come to an individual. And the Bible says in John, the third chapter, I want you to consider what the text says as we consider John chapter 3. And now we're going to look at verse 19. The Bible says in John 3 and verse 19, if we're there, please say amen. The Bible says in John 3 and verse 19, it says, and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men what? They loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So what happens is the way condemnation comes to an individual is when the light comes to them, they see the light, they understand the light, they fully comprehend the light. It is at that time that if they see, comprehend and fully understand it and yet they still refute it, It is at that time, then God says, now condemnation comes. Do you understand that? So just because a person is sinning, doesn't mean they're by default in condemnation. Because many people sin through ignorance. I wish we could have this understanding with even ministers. Brothers and sisters, listen to what I'm saying to you. In the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we have massive problems. We have apostasy that is constantly trying to wreak its way in our ranks. This is true. There are people who are not for God. And it comes from both leadership and laity. But what happens is sometimes we will hear certain individuals that are preaching and they may preach deadly heresy. Some individuals will immediately go into condemnation mode and begin to label individuals and put them in a certain category, which ultimately will testify that they, in fact, are lost. 
They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And we basically put out all these judgments. And we don't understand. Is it possible that they might be sinning through ignorance? A man simply says, I want to be a pastor. A man says, I want to go to school so I can learn to be a pastor. He goes to school and he's there believing, hey, listen, as long as I see the symbol, as long as I see everything looks right, I believe that what I'm about to get right now, I'm going to get some good seven-day Adventist education. But they don't understand the Alpha and Omega. They don't understand that, hey, there is a such thing as new theologies. They don't understand that these things have come in and some of these things have infected even people who are delegated as teachers and professors. So then those people innocently come in and they hear falsehood. They go through years of that. Graduate, get an education, and then give in a church, and then they begin to give people what they think is food when it's actually poison. The person sitting in the congregation hears it and says, wait a minute, that contradicts present truth. You know what? This person must be one of those ministers that we read in testimonies of ministers and gospel workers that has the hellish torch of false prophecy. And hence we begin to label them. But brothers and sisters, could it be that they are one of the individuals that are sinning through ignorance? And if they're sinning through ignorance, do they deserve condemnation? You know, one of the things we need to learn how to do is transition from the ministry of condemnation and begin to embrace a lot more the ministry of education. If we would really become strong, faithful educators, you would be surprised at how many people appear to be enemies of truth that actually may very well hear the shepherd's voice, as Jesus said, and they will actually follow him. But it takes somebody who has enough discernment to understand that. What I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, is that I believe with all of my heart there are some individuals that are against God's truth for this time. And they are deliberately doing everything they can to crush out God's present truth in our ranks. I know that these individuals exist. I've come in contact with many of them. But what I'm telling you is that there are also some, though they may even very well be few, there are some that are doing a damaging work. But if we respond to them and begin to minister to them and begin to help them see the light of God's present truth, there are many of those individuals that will realize that they were sinning through ignorance. And many of them will come to the light. Now, you know why I know this to be true? Because right before the close of probation. Think with me, brothers and sisters. Right before the close of probation in the book of Acts chapter 7. Notice what happened in Acts chapter 6. Go there. Right before the close of probation. In Acts chapter 7, something very special happened in Acts chapter 6. I make all my points for a reason because I believe God's spirit is leading. Notice what the Bible says in Acts the 6th chapter. It says in Acts the 6th chapter, starting at verse 1. It says, and in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So this is where they were breaking down the workload. 
This is again kind of like uh, Exodus 18, where Jethro is coming to Moses. Moses, listen, you handle the heavier works. The others will handle the lighter works, etc. So here's what's happening now in the establishment of the beginning of the Christian church. As this is happening, I am so thankful that the deacons also had to be filled with the Holy Ghost. They did not have, I remember the first time somebody offered me a position of a deacon. I said, well, what does a deacon do? They said, well, you know, he cleans the church, vacuums the floors, collects offerings, so on. So I said, man, that sounds like a glorified janitor. I said, I have no desire to be a janitor. I didn't join the church to be a janitor. I said, no, that's all a deacon is, no. And then one day I started to read. And when I began to read the Bible and understand deacons were supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Deacons were supposed to be apt to teach the word of God. When I started looking at what a deacon was, I said, now, if this was a deacon is, then I said, praise God. I said, I'll be happy to be one of those. So here it is that we're seeing this delegation now. So some are saying we're going to be committed to prayer and the ministry of the word. Others, they're going to be filled with the spirit of God, apt to teach and instruct the people in the word. And they're going to do the the other works. Now, watch what the Bible goes on to say in verse five. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. After these men were anointed, hands were laid on them, and they were now appointed to do their work. All of this is taking place right before the close of probation. What does the Bible say took place in verse 7? It says, and the word of God what? Increased. Uh Aha. The word of God increased. And the number of the disciples what? Multiplied in Jerusalem greatly and a great company of what? The priests were obedient to the faith. Do you see that? Right before the close of probation, the people who typically were known to be the greatest enemies of God and his present truth in Jesus Christ. The Bible says right before the close of probation, it says many of the priests became part of the faith. You understand that? Brothers and sisters, don't close probation on men and women. That's not your business. There are some people that treat all leaders as if they have arrived at a place where they can't be reached anymore and therefore they are deemed enemies of the work. That is a false gospel, brothers and sisters. The Bible does not teach that. There are many men who hold position of leadership that may even be doing a bad work, but they're sinning through ignorance. And God says, I need some people who can love them enough to tell them the truth and demonstrate the truth. And it very well may be that right before the close of probation, which we know is soon to come, that there's going to be many priests, many leaders that are going to turn to God in his present truth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, understanding this, so we know then that there are those who can sin through ignorance. And if you sin through ignorance, God does not condemn us. But now, let's go back to Leviticus 4. We're watching the process. There are many who sin through ignorance. But it goes on and gives us more detail. And I appreciate it. So the first point we want to understand is there are many people that are sinners today. No question about it. But we understand that many of the people who are sinners today, many of them are doing it through ignorance. And as a result of them doing through ignorance, God does not condemn them. Therefore, neither should we. 
So we need to start understanding the next step. So let's look at the next steps. The next step says, and if any one of the common people sin through ignorance, then the Bible helps us understand what sin is. And I appreciate this. It says, while he doeth somewhat against what? Any of the, any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done. So the people are sinning through ignorance and they were doing it because they were doing somewhat against what? The commandments of the Lord. So you can write this down, I would imagine. If you don't know it, then you can turn to it. So one of the things we find is that sin is being defined in the verse. The people are sinning through ignorance. How are they doing that? They were doing somewhat against the commandments of the Lord. So that makes it very clear then that sin is, as 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is the transgression of God's law. Somebody says there are over 613 laws in the Bible. How can I know which law it is that if I transgress it, it is sin? What would be our answer? What would be our answer? Well, again, the commandments, this is true. But remember, sin is the transgression of the law of God or God's commandments. But there are 613 laws in the Bible. There are moral law, there is civil law, there is physical law, there's lots of laws, health laws, sanitary laws. What law is it that if we break it, it is sin? There's ceremonial, sacrificial laws. What law is it that if we break it, it is sin? What is your answer? We're educating people. We say Ten Commandments, which sounds fantastic. How do we show it? Romans 8, 7 or Romans 7, 7? That's Romans 7, 7. That's what I was helping you out. Let's go to Romans 7, 7. Watch. If you go to Romans 7 and verse 7, notice what the Bible says. You'll see, Brother Mark. So you go to Romans 7 and verse 7. This is fundamental, brothers and sisters. You watch this now. We're going down a path. The sinner needs to know how to come to salvation. I want you to see what the Bible says in Romans 7. In Romans the 7th chapter and the 7th verse, notice what the Bible says. It says, if we're there, say amen. Amen. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known what? Lust, except the law had said what? Thou shalt not covet. What law says thou shalt not covet? Ten commandments, and write it in your notes, Exodus 20, 17. So if you're a Bible marking person, that's what you would do. So notice, the person is sinning through ignorance, meaning they did not know what they were doing is sin. God says they need to know. God says they need to know. You see, it is so simple. Only a sinner would seek salvation. If I don't see myself as a sinner, I'm not going to seek salvation. Which means that there has to be a ministry that exists that's going to cry aloud, spare not, and they are going to call sin by its right name. And it has to be clear. Today, the word sin is way too general. Way too general. Joe Cruz made that very same point in his book, Reaping the Whirlwind. He said these general platitudes about overcoming sin, etc. He says it does not touch the heart of the Laodicean because the Laodicean suffers with blindness. They can't see. So it is imperative that we have to make sin plain. We have to call it out by its right name. 
So step number one is we can't go to people and just say, did you know Jesus came to save you from their sins? A lot of people, their attitude is what sin? I'm all right. I'm doing just fine. I give to the poor. I help people all the time. Walk people across the street, visit homes, feed people that are hungry. Some of y'all don't even do that, they say. They say, I do all sorts of things. So what's so wrong with me? But when we put God's law before their face, when we help them understand sin is the breaking of God's holy commandments. And the question is this. Do you really believe that your good deeds can override what God has clearly prescribed in his word of unadulterated obedience? You see, let me read a quotation to you. This is from Desire of Ages 103. Watch this. This is so imperative. We're talking about how, how do we really help souls come to Jesus? I want you to watch this now. The Bible says in the book Desire of Ages, we're going to look at page 103. Desire of Ages, page 103. And I want you to watch what the Bible says. We're going to look at page 103, uh, paragraph 6. Desire of Ages, page 103, paragraph 6. Now, this is talking about John the Baptist. Was John the Baptist a soul winner? Yes, yes he was. That's why he's called John the Baptist. He was baptizing. He was winning souls. Amen. So John the Baptist was definitely a soul winner. And he was a soul winner not simply because he made people wet. John the Baptist was a soul winner because he understood true ministry. You see, when you read, and you write this down, when you read Acts of the Apostles, page 328, we're told the conversion of sinners and their sanctification through the truth is the strongest proof a minister can have that God has called them to the ministry. Let me repeat that. The conversion of sinners and their sanctification through the truth is the strongest proof a minister can have that God has called them to the ministry. God has not called us to just go around making a bunch of people wet. Dry sinner, dip him in the water, come up wet sinner. That was never God's plan. God's plan was that we take that individual and bring to them the gospel. They surrender their heart to Jesus and lay themselves upon that spiritual altar. And they allow Jesus to kill and mortify the deeds of the flesh. And when they surrender their life to Christ, they now are being brought down, buried. And when they come up, it's as it were a resurrection, a newness of life. The old life has been buried and put away. And now they're ready to walk in the newness of the life and light of Christ. And as they do that, that minister has to not only baptize them, but that minister now has to educate them, instruct them, nurture them, and help them to grow in sanctification. That's the strongest proof a minister can have. Now, John the Baptist was such a minister. Look at what it says in Desire of Ages 103, paragraph 6. It says this. He, talking about John, he saw his people deceived, self-satisfied, and asleep in their sins. Do you see people like that? Deceived, self-satisfied, and asleep in their sins. It goes on to say, he longed to rouse them to a holier life. You ever meet people? You ever, you ever tasted of God's holiness, his righteousness, and, and, and sense the peace that it brings, the joy that it brings, the love that it produces? Don't you want to give that to others? We are creatures that naturally like to share things that are good. We hear about a sale, we want to tell people about it. We like to share things that are good. Here it is that if we have tasted and truly seen that the Lord is good, we want to share it. Well, that's what John was doing. John, he knew the peace that God gives. So therefore, he wanted to rouse them to a holier life. It says the message that God had given him to bear was designed to startle them from their lethargy and cause them to tremble because of their great wickedness. John pulled no punches. Now watch this. It says before. The seed of the gospel could find lodgment. 
The soil of the heart must be broken up. If you want to know that you have met a city kid, put him in a farm and tell him to go ahead and plant some food. And if he starts walking on soil and just takes seeds and just starts throwing them on the ground, you can immediately look at that person and say, that's a city kid. They know nothing about farming. They know nothing about the country or agriculture. You understand that? No intelligent person in agriculture is going to throw seeds on soil that has not been broken up. You understand that? But isn't it amazing that that's how we can approach the gospel? The Bible literally equates the gospel as a seed. It's a seed. Remember Matthew 13, the parable of the sower? The seeds that went on the ground? The gospel is a seed. The ground represents the individual's heart. Stony ground, thorns, and all all these things. You understand that? So here it is, we're being told. It says, before the seed of the gospel can find lodgment, the soil of the heart must first be broken up. Now let's make it plain. It says, before they would seek healing from Jesus... They must be awakened to their danger from the wounds of sin. Nobody is going to truly accept Christ as a savior until they first see themselves as sinners. Because if they don't see themselves as sinners, then the function of Christ won't work. Matthew one twenty one says that Jesus, he came... His name shall be Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Some people are accepting Christ like they accept a friend on Facebook. You sound like a pretty interesting person. I'll check you out. And then depending on what posts are put up on that Facebook page, we can immediately say, oh, I don't really like this. Unfriend. And when we unfriend them, we actually still think we're okay. That's how a lot of people treat Jesus. We treat Jesus like Facebook. We accept him as a friend, kind of watch his posts, check him out, see what he has, see what he's about. Start saying, you know, I don't like what you're talking about. Unfriend. And they just literally get rid of him and still think they're okay. And so it is that the Bible lets us understand that in order to break that cycle, we have to help the sinner see that they're sinners. Because only when we see ourselves as sinners is when we will deliberately seek a savior. And so our ministerial crafting has to be based on this principle. And that is why, brothers and sisters, as I showed you the other night, that's why people are losing all sorts of confidence in Protestant churches. Because there's no protest anymore. People aren't calling sin by its right name. But brothers and sisters, you want to know why North American, especially Seventh-day Adventism, is struggling so hard. Because many of us have fallen into the same deadly trap that we're seeing by the churches that constitute Babylon. And we dare to imitate their practices and we think that we can give some lovey-dovey, la-di-da, wishy-washy, as Ellen White calls it, goody-goody love sermons. And we don't call sin by its right name. And we think that if we hide sin, if we put it in the back and just tell them about the love of Jesus, and then it's a perverted love on top of that. We think that's how people are going to get one to the truth. And we wonder why our churches are not being filled regularly with new souls. We're happy to baptize two people in a year. When volume four, the testimony to the church, page 67 and 68, it says clear as day. It says as the merchantmen, as businessmen are excellent in their trade. The prophet says, ought not the evangelist to be so? 
She says, in order to win souls, there are two things that need to be understood. The human mind and human nature. She says in page 68, and when this is understood, she says, where we only won one soul to Christ, it could have been 20. Sometimes we rejoice over such little accomplishment. And don't get me wrong, one sinner saved, heaven rejoices. That's Luke 15, 7. But God didn't want us to aim for one. God wanted us to raise the bar. Raise the goal higher. And so it is that the Bible is letting us understand that, listen, when that sinner is sinning through ignorance and doing somewhat against any of the commandment of the Lord, let's go back to Leviticus 4 and let's watch how the process goes. We're talking about how does an individual go from being sinner to saint. Watch what the Bible says. We're going back to Leviticus 4 now. In Leviticus, the fourth chapter, notice what it says again in verse 27. We're going to look at it again. It says, and if any one of the common people sin through ignorance while he doeth somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done and be what? The only way they're going to be guilty is it has to do the very first point in verse 28. What does it say in verse 28? It says, or if his sin which he has sinned has what? Come to his knowledge. That's how he becomes guilty. You understand that? That's why Acts 17.30 didn't finish with, and the times of this ignorance God winked at. Paul finished the verse by saying, but now commandeth everyone everywhere to repent. You understand that? So our job is to help the sinner see that they're sinners. And then when they see that they are sinners, they will more greatly appreciate their need for a savior. But if I don't see myself in trouble, then I'm not going to seek salvation. I got to see I'm in trouble. And John was a master at doing this. Telling you, if you study John the Baptist, he was a very straight shooter with the word of God. He did not hold back to obtain the favor of any. He would go ahead and tell the truth as it is. And when he did it, it was an act of love. So often people say calling sin and dealing with sin, calling people to repent from sin and rebuking folks. That's not love. I respectfully disagree. The Bible says in Revelation 3:19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. It's a message of love. It's not a message of hate. In fact... When we see a man going down the road to perdition and his life is about to be destroyed because of the indulgent lifestyle that they're living. And when we think in the name of friendship and brotherhood that we will hold back what we clearly see is going to kill them. I am here to let you know you don't love that brother. You hate him. You don't love that brother. That is not love, brothers and sisters. You would never do that with your own family members. If you knew that your child... Your brother, your wife, your husband was going down a path and you saw their cars going and you could see way back in the shadow of the trees. You see that train coming and you see their cars not slowing down. I don't see the red lights on their brakes and you see the car just keeps going. You're going to do everything possible to honk your horn, do everything. If possible, you're going to try to run up and catch the attention of that individual to say a train is coming. You're about to get wrecked. And somebody tells me, is that an act of love? You better believe it. Brothers and sisters, there's a wreckage that's getting ready to come. 
It's going to take the majority of the people in the world and in the church as an overwhelming surprise. And we think we're being nice to folks and we think we're helping them out when we decide, I'm just going to hold back. I clearly see people are doing things that's going to kill them. They're going to destroy themselves. I'm going to hold it back and I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to just let the spirit do the job. That is not biblical gospel preaching. Where does that theory come from? So God wants us to understand the sinner may be sinning through ignorance, but it needs to come to their knowledge. So somebody has to help them understand what sin is and then help direct them in the right path. Do we understand so far? So now let's continue in verse 28. Now, it says, or if it's sin which he had sin comes to his knowledge, then now here's the next step. So now the person is living in sin. They are living in sin, practicing their vices. We desire that individual to live a holy, happy, and life saved in the arms of Jesus. The Bible says that they are sinning, but it's through ignorance. But it needs to come to their knowledge. They need to understand that they have violated the very commandments of God. So this need, this knowledge needs to be brought before them. Did you ever notice how the Holy Spirit works in John 16? Go there with me very quickly. I'm I'm really substantiating these points so as we build, it just all, by God's grace, will make more and still more sense. John 16. You ever paid attention to this? I often wonder why is it in this order. But look at what the Bible says in John 16. In John the 16th chapter, talking about the Holy Spirit, verses 7 and 8 are very important. What does the Bible say in verses 7 and 8 of John 16? It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Verse 8, it says, And when he is come, notice the work of the Holy Spirit, when he is come, he will do what? Reprove or convince the world of sin and of what else? Righteousness and of Judgment. Now, brothers and sisters, that is potent. The Spirit of God works and impresses upon the heart to help them see their sin. When they see their sin, then they will see Christ, their righteousness. You understand that? So notice, sin, righteousness, judgment. They're all there. All of these play absolutely incredible parts in the path and the journey of getting to eternity right now in earth's history with Christ in the most holy place. So therefore, the people need to see their sins. As they see their sins, they will behold Christ, their righteousness, the one who can deliver them from sin. Look at how Leviticus 4 then brings it out. It says in verse 28, we're back there, in Leviticus 4, 28, it says once this has come to their knowledge, they see that they are sinners, they see they need salvation, now they have to find something. The Bible says, then he shall bring his offering, a kid of the goats, a female without blemish, for a sin which he has sinned. Once they realize that they are sinners, they need to understand that sinners can't save sinners. They have to find a substitute. So number one, they can't save themselves. Number two, nobody else can either. They can't look to mother, father, or anybody else because they're all sinners and blind leading blind both fall into the same ditch. So now they have to find a substitute. I appreciate that the the Bible says a kid of the goats. I appreciate that because there's a rationale behind it for anybody who understands animal husbandry. Why is it that if you, if you study all of Leviticus 4, you basically have three animals that play a part in making atonement. The bullock, the kid, and the lamb. 
You see this over and over again. Bullet, kid, lamb. Bullet, kid, lamb. Bullet, kid, lamb. Now, why is it that they have these? They're all babies. Lamb, baby sheep, bullet, baby cow, and then uh, kid, baby goat. All babies. Now, what did we notice about that? I was watching babies this morning. I, I went to have my devotion this morning, and I went out in that nice little area. Brother Chris knows what I'm talking about. And I had that little special time with the Lord. And as I had that special time with the Lord, I just started hearing, you know, you just hear the leaves cracking and everything. And I said, something's walking. So in my mind, I got excited because I really wanted to see a black bear. <laughs> so I started saying, man, I hope it's a black bear. So I went up and I started, to, I looked and it wasn't a black bear. It was a whole family of deer. Just a whole family of deer. Deers are really cute, you know. And as I'm looking at these things and, and you know, I would go, and I'll make a sound, and they just look, and their ears just flap out, and they're, you know, they're looking at me, and I'm looking at it, and looking at it. And here's what I saw. It was so beautiful, brother. And it was, it was beautiful because I appreciate how the Lord teaches us. And as I saw the deer, I saw all these big deers. These big deers just walking around. But you know what you saw? Kind of protected by these big deers? It was the little fawn. It was that little baby deer. And that little baby deer is just, just jumping around and moving around and kicking his legs and everything else. And that little baby thing had no sense of danger whatsoever because it was surrounded by its family that was clearly protecting it. And I said, Lord, that's exactly what we see in Leviticus 4. You see, the reason, one of the reasons why God wanted it to be a baby animal, because the baby animals, when you look at a lot of the adult animals, a lot of times, especially goats, cows, and sheep, a lot of times... Rips, cuts, bruises, and all these different things. But the family is very protective over the little ones. It's even in animal nature to protect your little ones. So the chances are greatly increased that when it's a kid of the goats, when it is a bullock, or when it is a lamb, that there is not going to be any blemish upon it. Because it was not enough to just find the animal. The animal had to be without what? Blemish. Without blemish. And I wonder, what does blemish represent in the Bible? What does blemish represent in the Bible? Sin. How do we know that? Do you understand? you understand? May God break us out of this cycle. Brothers and sisters, we are commanded to hide God's word in our minds. Did you know that? It's not a, it's not a suggestion. God actually commanded it. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart. What does the word heart mean? Mind. Set God. That's what it means to sanctify. Set something apart for holy use. God says sanctify the Lord God in your mind. David the psalmist says, I have hid thy word in my mind that I might not sin against thee. We don't hide God's word. We don't memorize scripture so we can brag and boast and say, look what I know. That's nonsense. But we do do it because we understand that sometimes you may not have your favorite Bible. That's all marked up. Sometimes your Bible might get thrown away. Sometimes it might get lost. Sometimes it might happen like God did with me, where God told me to give my favorite Bible to a man who did not know Jesus and did not have a Bible. And sometimes God's going to tell you to give it away. And you can't hold on to your book so much that you're like, I can't let it go because this is how I can remember everything. God says you should have been hiding it in your mind. So don't take it lightly, brothers and sisters. Just hear what I'm saying. I, I have no doubt you probably at least have read the text before. I would imagine you did. But at the same time, I am letting you know we need to take higher levels with God and his word. And we need to start trusting and believing that he can literally put his words in our mind and he can write his law in our minds. We have to start believing that. 
You start practicing faithful health reform. That was one of the great reasons why God gave us health reform. It was so that it could help strengthen the mind that we can understand his present truth. You understand? Now, how do we know that this, in fact, is something that represents sin? Blemishes represent. You had to have a kid of the goat, but it had to be without blemish. So now we're going to the book of 2 Peter. Go to the book of 2 Peter chapter 2. And how do we know that blemish represents sin? Because you had to find a baby. You had to find a young animal. And in finding that young animal, we had to go ahead and now the Bible says it had to be without blemish. So the first thing that man had to realize is once he recognizes he's a sinner, he has to see that he needs a savior. Because man does not want to die. You see, how many of you work? You do some type of work? And when you work, do you expect to get paid? Now, brothers and sisters, how would you feel if you worked real hard and you came to get paid and you didn't get paid? Would you be mad? You'd be bothered, wouldn't you? We need to understand that when a man works and when a woman works, they should get paid. Is that right? Now, brothers and sisters, as much as we follow that principle, do you know God believes in that principle? God believes if we work, we should get paid. Did you know that? What we don't understand is that when we work sin, there's a payment. You see, in Romans 6 and verse 23, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. Isn't it amazing? We like to work, but here we don't want to get paid. We say, I don't want to die. God says, no, you work. You need to get paid. You work the flesh. You need to get paid. You understand that? That is a law. The payment for sin is death. But the problem is people say, I don't want to die. People say, I don't want to die. Well, God says, I'm sorry that you don't want to die, but somebody has to die. And even sometimes, do you know some people can get to such a state of despair that when they find out that they're sinners and they understand the payment for sin is death, do you know sometimes people will actually say, you know what, I actually welcome it because I'm pretty tired of this life. You ever met people like that? You're going to meet people like that. You know what? You're going to meet people like that, that got to a place that you helped them see how sinful and messed They say, look, I already knew I was messed up, but now you help me see how more messed up I am. You know what? I don't even think it's worth it to live. I just want to die. And that's why I'm so glad that even when a person realizes they're a sinner and they need to get the payment for sin, which is death, and sometimes they may say, well, I welcome it. I'm so glad that God says I don't. When a man and when a woman gets to a place that they say, I'm so tired of this world, I'm so tired of my sinful life, I just want to die, I am so thankful that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not die. God says, I don't want you to die. So whether it be the individual saying, I don't want to die, or if the individual says, well, I welcome death, then we let them know, well, God doesn't. God doesn't want you to die. He doesn't want you to perish. He doesn't want to see one soul lost. And therefore, they need a substitute. So that's what Leviticus 4.28 is showing. The person sees their sins. They understand I need to get paid for my sin. And the payment is death. But either they or God or both say, but I don't want to die. Then God says, well, then if you don't want to die, you need to get a substitute. But it has to be without blemish. So we need to understand what blemish represents. So now we're in the book of 2 Peter chapter 2. In 2 Peter, the second chapter, notice what the Bible says. 2 Peter, we're in chapter 2 now, and we're now going to understand what constitutes blemish. And the Bible spells it out pretty powerfully. Notice what it says in 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 9 and onward. The Bible says in 2 Peter 2 and verse 9, The Lord knoweth 
how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not really accusations against them before the Lord. But these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Skip down to verse 14. It says, having eyes full of what? Adultery. Is adultery sin? Yes, because we know it's the seventh commandment. You break that, that is sin. So they have eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from what? Sin. Beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. And literally just goes down to this and explains all these horrible characteristics. Are these people sinners? Are they practicing sin? So notice how God refers to them now in verse 13. It says, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that counted pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes. Sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. So how does God refer to these sinners? He refers to them as spots and blemishes. You understand that? So when we think of this term, you had to find an animal without blemish. In the symbolic understanding, that is without what? Sin. You gave the right understanding, but we need to make sure that we have the right verses to substantiate. Because it's not enough that you have a right conclusion, but the question is, how'd you get there? Is that right? Very good. So now we understand that when an individual sees that they're sinners, they have to now look for a substitute, but the only thing is, the substitute has to be without blemish. So the question is, what is blemish? And blemish represents what? So they have to find a substitute that will die the death they're supposed to die, but it has to be without blemish, without sin. Now, the reason we know that Jesus Christ truly is the only name under heaven whereby a man may be saved is because I can even go to an imam in Islam and ask them, did Muhammad sin? And they will tell you, yes. So therefore, Muhammad is not qualified to be recognized as a substitute. I can go to Buddhists and say, did Buddha sin? Their answer is going to be yes. Therefore, Buddha is not qualified to be a substitute. You literally can go around all the so-called saviors, leaders, messiahs, and all of the different individuals in various religions. And can you imagine with all the hundreds of thousands of religious persuasions in the world, there's only one faith where there's a man who qualifies. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, the fourth chapter, right there in verse 15. The Bible says in Hebrews 4 and verse 15, we're talking about how an individual comes to Christ. I want you to see it now. Hebrews 4. And verse 15, the Bible says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without It's a clear declaration. You know, do you know, I, I thoroughly enjoy, you know, I understand we're in the Advent then. You all are in the church. And you either heard this before or know it. 
Meaning you actually know it, you studied to show yourself approved, so maybe you know it. Then there's some of us, we heard it, but we can't substantiate it. But nevertheless, we're all familiar with this. But I'm telling you the truth. Do you know what it's like to sit across a table with somebody who's never heard this before? And you start walking them through and you literally start asking them, now, here's a list of people that are referred to as saviors in the world. You let them see it. And you let them see. Now, we learned thus far that when we realize that we are in sin, we need a substitute so that we don't have to die that eternal death. So therefore, we need to find a substitute, but it had to be without blemish. So what was the blemish, John? John says a blemish is sin. I said, so let's go through a list of saviors and let's see, based on the world today that we live in, and there's a list of all these so-called saviors of the world, let's find out who qualifies. And then you start going down the list. This person, did they sin? Well, yes. This person, yes, 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 yes. Eventually you get to Jesus. And then you help them see it. Because do you know what some people are asking? Atheists and otherwise? New agers? You know what they're saying? Why Jesus? Why can't I have my Savior while you have your Savior? Do you know that evangelism often in India? Many of the people in India that accept Christ, do you know that what they do is they don't relinquish and get rid of all their false gods. They just simply add Jesus to the other million gods that they serve. Do you know how many people are doing this all over the world? And here it is, what we're doing is we're doing a disqualification work now. And we're doing it all based on Leviticus 4. We're helping them see that when you find that substitute, it has to be without blemish. And the question is, who qualifies that? And you let them speak. This person without sin? This person? This person? No, none of these people are without sin. Well, wait a minute. What about this person? Jesus. Of course Jesus sinned. He had to sin. Are you sure? Can I show you something? And then you take them to Hebrews 4 and you show them tempted in all points. Jesus was human, brother. He was human. He had our nature. But he was tempted in all points just like us, but he never sinned. He was without it. Wouldn't you want to know how did he do it? Do you want to live a life above sin? Yes. Did you know that Revelation 3.21 says they overcame as Christ overcame? Did Christ overcome sin? Yes. Do you want to overcome sin? Why don't we study the life of Christ and let's find out how he did it so we can do it. Listen. (laughs) I understand. If you're not doing evangelism, you don't understand. I understand that, but I'm telling you. When you watch that light go on in their eyes, because they're saying, I see it. I see it. I saw a man in Maryland, brothers and sisters, look me in the face, tears in his eyes. He says, I want what you have. Crying, broken, grown man. But he didn't have salvation. He literally said he was driving down the road as I was preaching. I was preaching Saturday night. He drove down the road. He was going to New York. He saw the sign talking about a meeting going on. The meeting already started. Brother sees the sign and he hears a voice in his head say, go to the meeting. Turn around. He obeys the voice. Turns around, comes in the meeting while I'm in the middle of preaching, going through the messages and everything else. Make the appeal. He responds to the appeal. He comes up. Surrenders his heart to Christ. Non-Adventist, don't know his brother from Adam. Comes in, he says, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, I'm doing a training tomorrow. He says, can I come? I said, absolutely. Showed up in the morning. Came there and everything. After the training, he says, I need to talk to you. Pulls me inside of the room. He says, you don't understand. He says, I was on my way to New York. But you don't understand why I was going there. He said, I rented an apartment. And I was on my way to New York. Because I set a plan to kill myself. He said, I set a plan to kill myself. He said, I had everything lined up 
I had the apartment. I knew the method I was going to do to take my life because I was tired of my depression. I'm tired of all the things that I'm going through in the world, etc., etc. And he said, and all of a sudden, as I'm on my journey, I see this sign outside. And he said, and all of a sudden, I hear a voice tell me, go inside the meeting. And he said, I didn't know what I was about to hear. And that's when the tears started pouring down his face. And brother, I don't know how you hear that. And you don't cry. I heard that and I started crying. And here it is. I'm crying. He's crying. And he says, brother, he says, I want what you have. Amen. We hugged each other and we prayed. Began to counsel and instruct. What I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, is I'm telling you, there is nothing like when you give God's truth to people. And you watch that spark in their eyes come out. And you see the light of God's love rise up inside of their hearts. Oh, my brothers, it is a beautiful experience. And you want more of it once you have it. You want so much more. And so it is. Let's bring some points out. I got to bring you to a close, but watch. So here it is that the substitute, it had to be without blemish, had to be without sin. It obviously boils down right back to Christ. So I'm in full agreement with Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 when the Bible says that there is no name under heaven. Not one. No name under heaven whereby a man may be saved. Did you know that that's actually a logical statement? That's not just simply a spiritual statement. It's actually a logical statement because there is no testimony of anybody else who has walked on this earth as a human being, tempted in all points, and not once sinned against God. Jesus was without blemish. He qualifies to be our Savior. Now, let's go back. Leviticus 4 again. So now we're going back there. So now we're looking at a little few more points. So here it is now. We see. Okay. So the sinner is sinning through ignorance. They didn't know they were doing wrong. All of a sudden... It comes to their knowledge as a result of faithful servants to help them understand what sin is and the effect of it, which is it separates us from God. They understand that sin is lawlessness. It breaks the commandments of God. And there's a payment. And the question is, do you want to get paid? The person says, no, I don't want to get paid. Well, then they need a substitute. But the substitute has to be without blemish. So we point them to the substitute, Jesus Christ. They say, all right, I accept this man, Christ Jesus, as my atonement. So notice what it says next now. So now we're in verse 29. It says, and he shall lay his hand upon the head of the sin offering. What does that mean? What does that mean? Transferring his sins. Now that sounds great. What is my next question? What's my next question? Where is that? Where do you get the theory? I hope that when you teach people, that you make sure you direct their minds to the word. Don't let them see that you're great. Let them see how great God is. Okay? Because you and I, our lives are but vapors. We can be here today, gone tomorrow, and we don't want those souls that we minister to to be destitute. If we can point them to the word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. But not us. Our job in ministry is not to tell people what we think or what we heard. Our job is to point people to scripture. Our job is to do what William Miller said, to talk Bible, think Bible, eat Bible, drink Bible, preach, teach Bible. That's what they need. So when they say, what is this laying on of hands thing all about? We need to give a Bible answer. Does anybody have an idea? It's all right to make a mistake in here. I'll forgive you. But what we want to do is not make a mistake out there. What do we understand it means when it says the laying on of hands? What does that mean? 
Leviticus 16. If you go to Leviticus the 16th, remember, keep your finger on Leviticus 4. But if you go to Leviticus the 16th chapter, what does it mean to lay on of hands? Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in Leviticus 16, right there in verse 21. The text says in Leviticus 16 and verse 21, the Bible says, And Aaron shall lay both his what? Hands upon the what? Head of the live goat. And do what? Confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. What does it mean to lay the hands on the head of the animal? To confess our sins. Okay? So now that the individual sees Christ... The Savior, the one without sin, no blemish, when they come to Jesus, the thing that they have to do is what? Confess their sins. Isn't that 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the instruction now to the individual is that when they identify the Savior as the propitiation for their sins, as their substitute, now they must confess. And when they confess, look at Leviticus 5, 5. Leviticus 5, 5, when they confess, a very important principle in confession. The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 5, it says, And it shall be, when he shall be guilty in one of these things, that he shall confess that he hath sinned, how? In that thing. Confession should be specific. Confession should be specific. Why? Is it because God has a lack of understanding? No. I used to struggle with that. I used to always struggle. Why do I have to confess my sins? For what? And then God answered it most emphatically through a blessed institution called marriage. It was in marriage. I've been privileged to be married to my bride for 18 years. Amen. And I remember in marriage, there was a point in time that my wife and I had a disagreement. And in that disagreement... I was actually the one that was wrong. So when I began to think through the disagreement and all these things of why, you know, why are we at this place with the disagreement, I realized through thinking about it, I said, oh, I'm wrong. I missed something. So you know what I did? Went back to my wife. I went back to my wife and I said, honey, I said, listen, I need to tell you something. I said, I need to apologize that I overlooked, uh, you know, this situation and everything. I said, so I'm sorry. And then you know what she said? She she stopped doing what she was doing. She looked at me, and here's what she said. She said, sorry about what? Do you think my wife was asking that because she didn't understand? Do you think that she forgot the offense? No. Did she have a clear understanding of the offense? Yes, she did. So why is she asking me that question? She wants to make sure I understand it. You understand that? Because when I understand specifically what I've done, my chances are increased that I won't what? Do it again. You understand that? Confession is for us. Confession is not to inform God. God already knows. But God privileges us to come to him in confession and contrition because he wants us to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Romans chapter 7 says. So when they confess, they should confess in that thing. Do you notice how easy it is for some of us to go back to sins? Because sometimes we just say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. We keep it general. 
We don't understand our specific issues. And sometimes it's easy to go back to those issues. But it's another thing when you say, Lord, forgive me for lying. Forgive me for stealing. Forgive me for talking rude to my husband. Forgive me for being disrespectful to my wife. The more that we are specific and we understand what we've done, now God has made it clear to our minds and now we know what more faithfully to lay on the altar and to watch out for as we continue to climb up Peter's ladder of grace. You understand that? So therefore the Bible makes it clear that the hands had to be laid on the head. Now after the hands was laid on the head, what does it say in verse 29? We're back there, right? It says, and he shall lay his hand upon the head of the sin offering. And then he has to do that next thing. What does he have to do next? He has to slay the sin offering upon the altar. That's serious. That's serious. I appreciate the fact that the Bible says he has to slay it. It didn't say he passes it on to another. It says he has to do it, right? We're reasoning this thing through the plan of salvation to understand how it works. He has to do it. Now, why does he have to do it? Because God wants him to recognize this animal's not at fault. You're the one at fault. I firmly believe that, again, you know, the Israelites had flocks and herds. That was a part of their lifestyle. You understand that? So what does that mean? That means then that when they had these flocks and herds, you can imagine that these animals that they had to take, sometimes they were taking it from their own flocks. Is that right? Absolutely. So these are animals that there is a familiarity between the owner and the creature. So when that person would sin, they would have to go ahead in the gate. And they would have to go to that animal that more than likely is familiar with them as they are familiar with that animal. Sometimes it's possible that you can have such a familiarity with animals that they are not even afraid of you. So you can imagine this person has to now go ahead and find that little baby goat. When they find that baby goat, I don't know if you've ever watched baby goats. They are some of the most incredible bouncing little creatures. They run like it's almost like a bounce, like a ball. And here it is that they're running around bouncing like a ball, making their little animal sounds and everything else. And this individual has to come to that animal. And they're coming, and that animal may possibly think, you know, you're doing your regular routine. When you come in, you got to feed me, you got to do this. So that animal's not sensing any danger whatsoever. And then here it is, we got to come to that animal. Eventually, we grab it, we take that animal, and we're holding it. May not be the first time you ever held that animal. So that animal may even have a comfort zone in your arms. Walking with that animal, that animal has its beautiful eyes and everything else looking at it, it's looking at you. And that animal has no idea what its fate is about to be. Go over to the altar, get to that place where we finally take the animal. Lay it down, tie it up so it can't move. And then we pick up this incredibly big, silver, shiny thing. Animal has no idea what it is. And then all of a sudden, we take that silver shiny thing and it comes down. And while the animal's looking up at us and just laying there, still not having an idea of what happens, all of a sudden, that knife just runs across its throat quickly. That animal goes through a shock sense that it has obviously never felt in its existence. All of a sudden, that animal, it's like the blood starts pouring down. The animal is moving because it's going through trauma because it's trying to process what just happened to it and it's dying. The animal's eyes are there, light and brilliant, but all of a sudden, it begins to slowly go dim. And the animal stops moving. And it's dead. And God wanted that to impress upon the mind of the Israelite. Exceeding sinfulness of sin. 
It was supposed to have an effect on the individual to say, Lord, I hated this experience. It hurt me to have to do this. I don't want to go through this again. And it gave just a small picture. Because remember, often they were the owner of the animal. And here it is, God was saying, I was the father of my son. And I had to watch him. Die. And I couldn't intervene. Because I had to let the plan of salvation run its course. And that pain, brothers and sisters, that it brought to both the creature and the owner, it was supposed to leave such a strong sense that it would make an individual say, I don't ever want to do this again. But do you know that the children of Israel's minds became so perverse that they got used to blood? After a while, it became commonplace to take an animal, run its knife across its throat, and kill one, and kill a hundred, and kill a thousand. And blood built up so much in the sanctuary that God says, I have to cleanse it at least once a year. Too much blood. And so it is, brothers and sisters. God wanted that thing to impress upon the heart of the sinner. This was the cost of your salvation. An innocent creature had to die. Yay. An innocent man had to die. You know, brothers and sisters, I marvel at how so-called Christians could have the nerve to approve something like the death penalty. And I'm thinking to myself, you have no idea what you deserve when you put the vote in for yes. Because, brothers and sisters, if the truth be told, we will go crazy over a story that a young person was killed in Atlanta. Innocent child just riding their bike. Some horrible man came and gunned them down. And we sometimes will say, put them under the prison. Kill them. Put them under the death penalty. And God says, and so should it be with you. You know why? Because that man killed that child once. But every time we sin, we crucify Christ afresh, Hebrews 6, 6 tells us. And desire of ages 300. God wants us to understand, brothers and sisters, that he wanted to impress upon the heart of the sinner. This was the penalty. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of his peace was upon us, and by his stripes, we are healed. You see, God wanted us to understand that when we accept the true and faithful testimony of what our sins have done to the Savior, did you know it has an effect? You see, one of the things God wants his people to do in these very last moments of earth's history is he wants us to repent. Is that right? He wants us to repent. Yes? Amen. Go to the book of 2 Corinthians 7. Let me show you something. God wants us to repent. You know what repent means? Repent means to do what? Turn away. Very good. He wanted us to turn away. So when you think of repenting from sin, it doesn't mean just saying sorry. It means turn away from it. Don't go back to it, right? But I'm going to show you the key ingredient to repentance. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, when you're there, please say amen. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, right there in verse 9, it says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to what? Repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow works what? Repentance to what? Salvation. 
Not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now, brothers and sisters, the key ingredient to true biblical repentance is what's called godly sorrow. If we don't have godly sorrow, we can't have true repentance. And if we don't have true repentance, we don't have salvation. You understand that? Godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. So we need the godly sorrow that we can have the true repentance that we may receive salvation. You understand that? Now watch this. Why is that important? The reason that's important is because how do we get godly sorrow for sin? How do we get that? Can it be manufactured by the natural human nature? No, it cannot. The carnal mind, this quote, Brother Mark, is where it is. Romans 8, 7 tells us the carnal mind is at enmity with the law of God. Hates God, naturally. Hates God and his law, naturally. That's our natural condition. Deceitful, wicked, desperately wicked heart. So we can't naturally manufacture godly sorrow for sin. That's why we keep going back to it. So if anybody's in this room right now and you're struggling with horrific types of sins and all these other things, one of the key reasons why is because we have yet to have God give us a godly sorrow for that sin. We kind of intellectually know this was wrong. Uh, Yeah, I was told and I I do believe that it it, it hurt Christ. So let me just go to God and kind of say sorry or whatever. But at the same time, we may not have a sorrow for sin. And you know one of the key ways we know we don't have a sorrow for sin? When we can rehearse it and talk about it and sometimes even have a smile on our face. Sometimes we talk about our old lives. I remember when I used to, you know, imagine a man was foolish enough to say, I remember when I killed this child. And imagine he had a smile on his face. I remember when I killed this child. I held him down. What would we say about that man? We would say, this man is sick. This man is crazy. There's something wrong with him. But sometimes when we talk about our past lives, and we used to live in sin. Sometimes we talk about our past sins. Sometimes we do it with a big smile on our face. We don't sense what, what, our, what our lives have done to the heart of God. You understand that? That's why I'm telling you, we need God to give us godly sorrow. We can't develop it. We can't manufacture it. You understand that? So then the question is, how do we get it? Zechariah 12. In Zechariah 12, and it's interesting because all of this ties right back into the principle of the sin offering. When you look at Zechariah 12, I want you to see what it says in verse 10. Zechariah 12 and verse 10. How do I develop this godly sorrow for sin? The Bible says in Zechariah 12 and verse 10. When we get there, please say amen. The Bible says in Zechariah 12 and verse 10. It says, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have what? Pierced. And they shall mourn as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness as one who is in bitterness for his firstborn. When someone mourns for their son, do they have sorrow? Mourning and sorrow are synonymous. The Bible says God will pour his spirit of grace upon us. We can't identify the work of Christ independent of God's spirit. That's why 1 Corinthians 12 says no man can even confess Christ except to be by the spirit of God. God's spirit is going to impress upon our hearts what happened on Calvary. And as we understand, he died because of my sins. He took my punishment. 
that I can have his reward. And I believe, brothers and sisters, that we do not have as clear a view of the cross and the cost of it as we should. And that's why I'm going to give you a homework assignment. I want you to read volume two of the Testimonies to the Church, page 200 to 215. You will get a clearer picture of the cost of the cross. Volume two of the Testimonies to the Church, page 200 to 215. You read that and you will get a clearer picture because some people look at the cross as just a day of a bloody mess. And for some people, that's all, that's where it stops. It was a day a man just suffered all this pain, covered up in blood, beaten and lacerated by whips, etc. And they believe, and he did that for me. No, brothers and sisters, it's a lot more than that. There's a much deeper cost of the cross. And we need to understand it because it's when we understand that, then it says, then we will look upon him whom we have pierced. And that is what is going to produce a sorrow for sin. And when we have a godly sorrow, it leads to repentance, and repentance does lead to salvation. This is what God was trying to bring across to our hearts. Now, I want you to watch this beautiful transition in verse 30 of Leviticus 4. We're about to close now, We're bringing out these final closing points here. We're now in Leviticus 4, and I want you to look now at verse 30. And I want you to see now, because I thought that this was interesting. Did you notice that from verses 27 to 29, did you notice there's no works involved? Did you, did you catch that? Did you catch? Literally from verse 27 to 29, there's no works involved. There's no doing of any deed of the law of God or anything like that at this point. What the person is doing is they're recognizing they're a sinner. They realize they have violated the law of God. They see themselves as sinners under condemnation now. They don't want to die, so they're looking for a substitute. But the substitute has to be without blemish, so they see Christ is the only one that fits. They're willing to accept Christ's atoning work on their behalf. So now they are confessing their sins and recognizing it was me, oh God, that killed your son. Please have mercy upon me and forgive me. That is all that has happened between Leviticus 4.27 and 29. That's all that happened. There's a clear understanding of the atoning work and acceptance of that atoning work on their behalf that they accept totally by faith. Now verse 30 kicks in and it gets very interesting. What does it say in verse 30? It says, And the priest shall take of the blood thereof with his finger. And put it upon the horns of the altar of burnt offering and shall pour out all the blood thereof at the bottom of the altar. And he shall take away all the fat thereof as the fat is taken away from off the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar for a sweet savor unto the Lord. And the priest shall make an atonement for him and it shall be forgiven him. I thought this was so interesting because my mind is picturing it. The sinner has to come to the courtyard. The sinner has to bring the animal. The animal has to be investigated that there's no blemish. Once the priest is like, yes, this is a good animal. There's no blemish whatsoever. Then they have to go through this process where ultimately they slay the animal. When they slay the animal, if you look back in Leviticus 4, the priest is capturing the blood now. He's the one that's taking it into the holy place. So what the sinner had to do was leave. Literally, the sinner, you have to leave. They would leave now the courtyard. The sinner is probably thinking, 
What about my atonement? What about me being forgiven? How can I have the assurance? And the answer was, you have to trust the priest. You understand that? You have to trust the work of the priest. The priest is the one that's taking out the fat and putting it upon and the burning and etc. The priest is doing this work now. So here it is that when we look at this, Leviticus 4, 27 through 31, I believe is one of the beautiful pictures of justification by faith. It's a beautiful picture. It is holy by faith. Upon the merits of the priest working on behalf of the sinner, the sinner accepting by faith this work of the priest, his merits, and therefore... That individual walks away trusting and exercising faith in the priest to do for him what he cannot do for himself. That's justification by faith, isn't it? Right? Now here's where it gets interesting. This person is now forgiven. This person is clean. I guarantee you when you sit down with a Bible student and when you get to this point of the study... And you help them know. I remember I did this one time. We prayed. I said, let's pray together. We prayed together. And the person, they acknowledged their sins. They accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, etc. And when we got up, I looked them in the eyes and I said, do you know what you are? And they said, what? I said, you're clean. I said, you're clean. No spot on your record. I said, now you have a job. What's the job? I said, stay clean. Now you have to retain what you've experienced. And did you know the Apostle Paul puts it in beautiful language in Colossians 2? Go there with me. In Colossians, the second chapter, we now understand a beautiful point. You see, an individual is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. This is true. But now, when we get to Colossians chapter 2, notice what the Bible says as we consider Colossians 2. In fact, I guess to give it more context, let's go to Hebrews 6 first and then we'll go to Colossians 2. Hebrews 6 and then Colossians 2. Just to give it a little bit more context. So we'll go to Hebrews 6 and we'll look at verse 1 and then we'll look at Colossians 2. So Hebrews 6 and verse 1. And if you're there, say amen. Hebrews 6. And when verse 1, the leaves still turning. When you look at Hebrews 6 and verse 1, what does the Bible say? The Bible says in Hebrews 6 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto what? Perfection. Let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So when we receive these principles of the doctrine of Christ, when we are standing before him justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, now go on unto perfection. Now that you have been redeemed, now God is going to do a work of restoring you. God is going to now restore his image in you. This is what we call the process of sanctification. Now, with that, the question has been, how do we approach sanctification? Now look at Colossians 2. When you look at Colossians 2, how then do we approach sanctification or the sanctified life? Observe the text. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, it says, As ye have therefore what? Received. 
received Christ Jesus the Lord, so do what? Walk ye in him. How did you receive Christ? You received him by faith. So therefore, in the sanctified life, we walk by faith and not by... You understand that? So now, the same merits, the same power that I trusted God can do on my behalf to pardon me is now the same merits and the same power that God can give to empower me to live above sin. It's the same exact faith. The same faith that I had to come to him to make me clean is the same faith I must exercise in him to keep me clean. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. At no point are you and I looking to and trusting to self to live above sin. We are now accepting the same righteousness of Christ that can cleanse is the same righteousness of Christ that can keep. And all we have to do is whenever God speaks and instructs, yield. When God says, this is not my desire for you. This is offensive. Why don't you put that away? We yield and say, yes, Lord, and we put it away. When God says, this is not the way I want you to eat. God says, there's a way that I want you to eat that's going to fit your mind to understand my present truth. God says, I want you to put it away. We yield and we cooperate. We choose to do his will. And at every stage of every choice and every decision, we are exercising faith, trusting God to empower me to do what I never could have done for myself. And the Apostle Paul says it in beautiful words in Philippians 2 and verse 13. For it is God. Who worketh in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. You yield. When God speaks and God tells you and God instructs and he says put away. And when he says embrace, you and I have a gift that makes us different from monkeys. It's called the gift of choice. And all God's biddings, Christ Object Lessons 333 says, are enablings. Anytime he bids you, he's going to enable you, and you and I simply exercise the will. And you know what's nice? Actions repeated form habits. And habits form character. And character determines destiny. And so it is that we will get to a point that we have walked so much by faith with Jesus. Throughout this process of not just being justified, but also through sanctification and ultimately glorification. And at no point do we get any credit for it. No creature merit, no saved in sin. The beast is defeated. And this is what God wants to accomplish in your heart and in my heart. And brothers and sisters, I don't know if somebody might have come in here dirty. You know what you did last night. You know what you did this morning. You know what you did right before the meeting. You know what you were probably entertaining in your thoughts during the meeting. We are a very wicked people, brothers and sisters, and there is nothing good about us. Nothing. Nothing. And one day we have to believe that. Because it's only when we believe that we'll stop consulting our opinions. We'll stop trusting ourselves. And we will not make a move except we know that God approves it. And you got to get to that place before it is eternally too late.
I often ask young people, if a man came to your house and said, hello, I am deceitful above all things and I am desperately wicked. May I please come in your house? I said, what would you say to that man? They said, oh, we would tell that man, no way, I don't trust you. We would close the door, lock it, double, double time, etc. I said, then why would we listen to our own hearts when God said our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? Why do we constantly speak what we feel? Think what we want to think. Do what we want to do. When all we're doing is following the dictates of an exceedingly, desperately wicked heart. We must get to that place that we lose all confidence in self. And we learn to trust God. And just to imagine, when we learn to trust God fully, amply, and entirely, who remembers what that's called? The faith of Jesus, which is the essence of the third angel's message. May God help us to help people understand the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Walk them through the process. Let them see the light of Christ and his love and his desire to save. Let them behold the righteousness of Jesus Christ in such a way that they can truly say, I have seen one who is altogether lovely and now I truly see that I am altogether ugly and I want what Christ has. And they will surrender their hearts to Jesus. And if your heart hasn't been surrendered, then it begins with you. And then as you allow Christ to win you to his heart, then you can be an instrument in his hands to help others be one to his heart. How many of us understood the study today? Amen. May God bless us. And my simple appeal is, if you see, Lord, I myself, maybe you see some blind spots in this process of salvation that you can see that I've lacked cooperation with God. Maybe you did not follow the principles of Leviticus 4 as faithfully as should have been done. And if you see it in your own life and you're saying, Lord, by your grace, help this to be remedied. That the same way I receive you is now the same way that I can walk in you by faith. And faith always has works that are motivated by love. And may that be our reality. And if it has not been, and if you've been struggling with that and you're saying, preacher, please remember me in prayer. Please stand to your feet with me. I want to pray with you. I want to pray with you. And I want you to pray for me. And may God help us to be faithful, even unto death. Our loving Father, we are so thankful for the words of life. We thank you for the way of salvation. We thank you that in these few moments, we were able to cover some very important principles. And, oh Lord, how my heart would have loved to have gone through our cooperation with Christ in the Holy and in the Most Holy. But Lord, I believe we have enough of a foundation that if we just faithfully build upon it, we will ultimately, by your grace, reach the height of Jacob's ladder and come face to face with thee, never to part again. Please, Lord, keep us faithful to this end. Thank you so much for this weekend that we have had one with another. And continue to guide us and give us thy wisdom and instruction, we pray. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This message is produced by PTH Ministries. Our mission is to spread the three angels' messages through preaching and teaching the Seventh-day Adventist message and to integrate healing through medical missionary work in declaring the gospel. For more information on our ministry and the resources we provide, please log on to our website at www.pthministries.com. 
That's www.pthministries.com. Or you can call us at 770-274-9537. That's 770-274-9537. May we do our part to meet the needs of humanity through the everlasting gospel and hasten Christ's return. Maranatha. Maranatha.